Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We talk about Nico Hulkenberg's Renault deal and take a look at the 2017 F1 driver market. While the driver market at the sharp end of the Formula 1 grid is pretty static going into 2017, with Mercedes, Red Bull and Ferrari all running unchanged lineups, there's been plenty going on further down the field to get our teeth into. Nico Hülkenberg's switch to Renault is the latest move in the driver merry-go-round to talk about. First, it's time to introduce our panel. My name is Ed Straw, and joining me today is an Autosport podcast rookie, Lawrence Barreto. Lawrence, how are you standing up to the pressure of your big debut? Well, I've done some preparation. I've done some keepy uppies. Uh, I've uh, listened to some music, look like I know what I'm doing, and I've entered my chair from the left side, not the right side. So I feel like I've done all the kind of preparation I need. There's some good superstitions going on there, although uh, I can see a little bit of pressure. Maybe there's a little bead of sweat above the eye, so we'll, we'll see how you perform. But it's a good start, it's a good start. Uh, we've also got uh, Glenn Freeman, the third member of our trio, editor of Autosport.com. Now, tell all, Glenn, have you been among the thousands of drivers who've had talks with Renault? Perhaps the karting career of your younger days has finally caught someone's eye. Yeah, I can't say too much, but like anyone else who's ever held a race licence, I am in talks with Renault. Obviously now that's only for one seat, but my people are working on it and watch this space. This is presumably the driver's seat in a road going Clio. At best. 
So, Nico Hülkenberg to Renault. How's this happened, Lawrence? We've obviously had all sorts of drivers connected with them, Sergio Perez, etc. You've been beavering away in the paddock for the uh, last few uh, rounds, finding out exactly what's going on. Well, Renault seem to be the team that want everyone, and no one seems to want Renault. They started with a wish list, and they've worked their way down, and they've ended up with Nico Hülkenberg. I think top of the list at the beginning was Sergio Perez and Carlos Sainz. Perez, they fancied that his money and the backing that he's got, and he was a you know a sensible, experienced driver. But in the end, he just decided that wasn't quite the risk he wanted to take. Uh, with Carlos Sainz, they just couldn't get him out of his Red Bull deal. Uh, so they've just gradually worked their way down the list, uh, and they've ended up with Nico Hülkenberg, who in himself wants a chance to try and prove himself. So it seems like a sensible decision. I think it's fair to say Nico probably further down the list than he would have been two or three years ago. That, that's the surprise, I think, the fact that we're at a stage now in F1 where you have to work your way down a list to get to Nico Hülkenberg. You certainly wouldn't have thought that a couple of years ago. I think it shows maybe how his stock has fallen a little bit and other drivers have come in and particularly in this current set of regulations have done a better job than him. I think it also shows that in F1 you only get so you get few chances to to get your chance to really prove that you've got what it takes to do it and as you said there's been quite a high turnover uh, in recent years and Nico just didn't it just didn't fall well for Nico Hulkenberg that's not to say that he's not a good driver but who's to say that this isn't how it should have worked out in the end he's got his chance now with Renault so we can see what happens. Well Renault's certainly a team that has the potential to be up at the front but he's kind of had to go the alternative route hasn't he rather than dropping into a big team like a Ferrari or whoever who he has been linked with he has had talks with he's come close to moving to in the past he's got to kind of climb the ladder with a with a team that's got a very long way to go but does have the the ingredients theoretically to deliver. I admire the fact that he's taken the risk you know Lawrence mentioned there that Sergio Perez his teammate decided actually force India on a pretty good trajectory at the moment so I'll stick this one out and I like the fact that Hulkenberg's taken a different decision he's maybe felt that he's bounced around some midfield teams he wants to take a gamble and Renault is a gamble at the moment we are expecting investment and big things from them but we certainly haven't seen much in the way of their comeback so far to suggest that it's a sure thing have we? No, that's true. But I think the difference here is that Nico probably, it was easier for him to make this decision. Checo's sailed in so well with Force India. He's got results with them. With Nico, he kind of feels like he's running out of time. Not that Checo isn't as well, but I think Nico just feels like he's running out of time. And so he probably felt this is the last roll of his dice. And if they really want him, he may as well try to take that. Yeah, their, their current stint together at teammates has probably been more beneficial for Perez's reputation than Hulkenberg's, hasn't it? So maybe that played a part in the decision as well. The last couple of years, Perez has outperformed Hulkenberg, which is an interesting one. I wrote a piece for Autosport.com that went up last week, which had a look at Nico. And, you know, he's a driver I've got a lot of time for, a lot of respect for his ability. I think he's got it in him to win Grand Prix. But I can't argue that the last couple of years he's really been delivering at the maximum of what he can do. He's obviously not great on tyre management. He's shown he can adapt and do that, but I'm not sure he's completely convinced he should have to. And he feels a little bit like a driver who's stagnated a little bit in a team that he knows that for all the quality that there is at Force India, their potential is limited because they are a a small team. Doing miracles, there's a very good chance they'll be fourth in the Constructors' Championship, which is absolutely astonishing. But it's a long way from fourth to first, whereas by taking a couple of steps backwards, he'll be hoping he can go seven steps forward. But it's going to be down to him to put the graft in and accept that early on it's going to be hard work. He's got to show that he wants to finish seventh rather than ninth while he's climbing the ladder. Otherwise, when Renault gets near to the top of it, they'll say, thanks, Nico, we'll get someone else in now. I guess fourth place for Force India, if they get that this year, 
that is their glass ceiling, isn't it? They're never going to reach the heights of the really big teams that are ahead of that. They have done a fantastic job in the last two or three years of being the team that whenever the big guns do slip up, it's Force India that are there to pick up the pieces and to take that podium. But it's been Perez every time, so that must be eaten away at Hulkenberg, I suspect. Well, Hulkenberg's closing in on the record for most starts without a podium finish, which Adrian Sutil, um, an old Force India driver, has, which is pretty remarkable considering Hulkenberg's ability. Well, he's too good for that record. I hope he, he doesn't hold that record. And the other driver, Valtteri Bottas, was the latest driver to be linked to them. I have, I have my suspicions that that might be more about him and his management wanting to force Williams' hand. But Definitely. He'd be a logical choice for them. That'd be a strong driver lineup. But do we think he's going to end up there, Lawrence? I don't think so. I think uh, Williams are pretty confident that they've got Lance Stroll and Valtteri Bottas lined up uh, for next year. As you suggested, Ed, um, I think his management are trying to eke everything that they can out of this deal because they know Williams need Valtteri more than he needs them. I imagine it's just paperwork that's got to be completed now. I have no doubt that he would have spoken to Renault. Why wouldn't you? It's worth doing that just to see what's about. But I think one of the lineups that is pretty set is the Williams one, and I think that's going to feature Bottas in it. I completely agree that this is just a management ploy, really, whether it's to get better terms on the next deal with Williams or just to get Williams to hurry up and take up the option. But part of me does think if you did end up with Hulkenberg and Bottas at Renault, that's quite an exciting lineup as well. I don't think it'll be happen, but I would have liked to have seen it. No, it'd have been a great lineup, wouldn't it? It does sound like this is all part of the whole ploy related to the Williams contract he's got and the, the option they have on him that triggers a pay rise. I'm sure they want him to take a new, longer-term deal that perhaps isn't so favourable uh, economically to him. But it, it does sound like this will move things on move things on quite quickly. But it does suggest, obviously, that the incumbent drivers, Kevin Magnussen and Julian Palmer, aren't exactly uh, strong contenders. If it's not Bottas, where's it going to go? It's a tricky one. I think, like you suggested, Jolien and Kevin both know that they're not first choice on Renault's list um, and they're quite accepting of that. They've got relatively little experience in Formula 1, so that's understandable. Where do they go from here? I think Esteban Ocon. Um, If the terms of the deal that they had to strike with Nico Hülkenberg hasn't made that option not possible, then I think Esteban's got to be the way uh, to go from them. Force India are quite keen on them. So it all just depends on what they what arrangement they came to to, to put this together. But um, for me, it's Esteban Ocon. Do Renault need to formally prize Ocon from the clutches of Mercedes? Because there was that weird tie-up at the start of the year, wasn't there, where he's a Mercedes junior, but Renault had a piece of him when he was their reserve driver. Is there going to be a, a tug of war there, or is there a way that either side can just lay claim to him and that's the end of it? I think they'll end up being some form of tug of war. I remember when Espan went to Manor, Renault came out and said, look, we're, we're, we want to put him in a car to see how good he actually is. So it suggests that they have got or feel they have got some say in where he ends up going. But as you say, Mercedes aren't going to want to let someone who they clearly rate highly uh, to go as well. So I can see this kind of going on between them, a little bit of tug of war. It'll be a cracking lineup for Renault, I do think. Ocon, obviously he's only done a few races with Manor. I think a few people thought he was going to drop into the car and instantly destroy Pascal Verlein, which was never going to happen. But equally, we're looking at the progress he's making now and maybe we're starting to see the the evidence within that team of what Mercedes certainly suspects, that Ocon is actually the guy who's got the ultimate greater potential than, than Verlein, good as Verlein is and impressive as he's been this year. I feel like a Hülkenberg-Ocon lineup that looks like a team suddenly that's got a plan. You know, you've got a, a solid what you hope can be your lead driver, who you hope can reach the heights that we've seen on occasions from Hülkenberg. 
But then you've got a young guy with, with some real promise who you can get behind. Obviously, it helps for Renault that he's French, I'm sure. But that's a, yeah, that's, that feels like some building blocks are going in place, whereas the Magnussen-Palmer lineup, while I think they're both deserving of a chance in F1 and a seat in F1 if they're available, it felt a little bit like it was a case of at short notice trying to fill two seats and it was probably a case of, as they're doing this time, working their way down the list, maybe a little bit further down the list for this year. And they reached Magnussen and Palmer as their as their partnership. I think the thing with Espen Ocon is if you can get him early and you can get him into a team like Renault where they can put the support around him. Not that Manu aren't offering him that support at the moment, but he'll have had half a season there to kind of settle in. If you can get him in early, bed him in, and he can start learning from Nico Hülkenberg, he's in a really good position uh, to do that. Hopefully he'll be a hungry Nico Hülkenberg, and that's exactly what you kind of need, two guys kind of sparring off against each other. I think you'd need a driver in that second car just to keep Nico honest because you don't want him sort of thinking, well, first season... I'll just sort of drive around, bank some decent points. You want him to be every weekend getting the maximum out of it and really showing that he can grab the team by the scruff of the neck and, and drag it to the to the next level. Uh, and then Ocon, yeah, they've got a, a driver there with huge potential. And yeah, Max Verstappen beater as well. Beat exactly. Max Verstappen in F3. Exactly, Obviously yes. with a bit more experience. but Yeah, but as is often forgotten, you know, this is Ocon is part of a generation that includes Verstappen that's coming through that is exactly the reason why Nico Hülkenberg's moved down people's lists because uh, he's kind of become a middle-aged Grand Prix driver now. So it's great to see guys like Ocon coming through. I guess the other question is, what does all this mean for Force India? They've got a vacancy. They've got Mercedes engines. That's led a lot of people to draw conclusions about who may or may not be in that car. So who's your money on, Lawrence, for Force India? Force India could do with getting a driver that can bring some money to that seat. Um, I don't think they would uh, deny that. Esteban Ocon and Pascal Verlein are the two that have been linked with it. When it comes to splitting between them, Force India simply rate Esteban Ocon higher. Um, and they're right, too. I agree with Mercedes' estimation. I agree with Force India. And also Force India have run both those drivers in testing, in season testing, and so they've got the data, and they've just been impressed by him. He hasn't had that many appearances in the car, fewer, I think, than Pascal has. So if you can improve in that short period of time and you've got a team fighting over you, essentially, um, I think that's a good thing. I think there is a link there with the engines, but I don't think Mercedes are that keen to give too much of a discount on it. So I, I think that that might be the stumbling block for Force India if they really do need money for that seat. That could be what proves tricky, but I think Esteban Ocon is top of their list. If they need money, Magnussen's about to come back on the market by the looks of things. He's got more backing than he ever really makes public. He's got some support, some very rich people in Denmark. He coughed up more money than they ever let on for the McLaren drive in 2014 and there is more money available there if required but it almost feels like he's not coming forward with it because he feels that he deserves to be on the grid on merit which could be fair but I feel like when you get to this stage of the season and you might be without a drive it's probably the time to start making people aware that you could bring some money to the table as well he feels like he could be quite a good fit alongside Perez uh, at Force India if they want to a quick driver who on his day really can deliver and one who does bring some backing and some sponsorship. I could see Magnussen working there, but it feels to me like the whole agenda around that Force India seat at the moment, the obsession is get a Mercedes Junior in there, get a massive discount off the engines. But as you're saying, Lawrence, Mercedes aren't exactly waving these discounts around and I can understand why. You can see someone like Magnussen being quite a Force India kind of driver. And if you look at since that team's been Force India... Um, obviously it changed identity for 2008 to its credit they've always brought in 
good drivers. You know, you look at the guys who they've had, Hulkenberg, De Resta, Suttel, you know, all proper Grand Prix drivers. Perez, okay, Perez comes with money, but he's a serious Grand Prix driver. So that's the kind of best of both worlds for them. But at the same time, there have been plenty of times when drivers have knocked on the door with big bags of gold, drivers of much less uh, quality CVs who they've, they've turned away. The sort of drivers that might get a Friday outing or an end of season test outing with the team. Yes, there have been some, uh, some interesting testers turning up at Force India. Uh, really <laughs> exactly, exactly. But Force India realise you need drivers who can deliver. You don't finish fourth in the championship or potentially finish fourth in the championship as a team of that size if you've got second-rate drivers in there. They do a lot of analysis about who to pick, about the potential returns. I remember when they were, even when they were choosing between Sutil and Bianchi for what would have been 2013, the analysis came down on Sutil's side because they felt they'd, they'd score more points that first season with Sutil. So even though they rated Bianchi. Um, so they do do a lot of work to understand which driver will get them the best outcome. Magnussen certainly could. Verline, Ocon, all three of those are drivers who are quite force injury if they can pull together some kind of commercial package with it. The, the worry will be if they go for someone who is what you call an out-and-out pay driver. So the kind of one who you go, hmm, that's, a little bit, that's a little bit odd. Uh, that's when they start, you start to get a little bit worried about the finances of the team. But They've never been in that position in the past few years, so it's given the benefit of the doubt and assume they're going to do it properly as they always have. And surely if they keep racking up these decent constructive championship finishes, a bit more money keeps coming each time from the Eccleston pot, if we want to call it that. So you'd hope that that can continue and they can just keep building that momentum and sort of riding the crest of a wave at the moment. They are, they are a serious Grand Prix team and I think it's to their credit that they don't just chase the money bags. Um, but... Actually, this has made me think of something, talking of money bags. Lawrence, you've spoken a few times this year to Pastor Maldonado. Is he on anyone's radar this year, do you think, or has his time been and gone? I think he's put himself on everyone's <laughs> radar this year. Um, I heard a story that he uh, emailed uh, Team Boss repeatedly um, asking for a drive. Is this um, Alan Partridge? Can I have a second series type emails? <laughs> well, it, let's just say he was quite he was quite keen uh, to put himself <laughs> forward uh, for the task. Trouble is, as as much as Pastor Maldonado brings uh, money with him, um, it's not as much as it used to be, and he simply isn't that good. And the damage he causes causes too costs too much money. So uh, I don't think he's really on the radar of anyone who's got seats left uh, anymore. That doesn't mean he ha- he'll stop trying. But I don't think he's gonna. He's got a chance, really, to get back on the grid at the moment. And there'll always be other drivers floating around with potential backing who can compete. And I, you imagine that people will say, "Well, okay, he's a Grand Prix winner, but he brings some negatives with him." So all he need, would need, even if he wasn't in contention, would be for one decent rookie with uh, with a pot of gold to get ahead of him. There's also a case in F1 that a year away from the grid or a year off the grid does quite a lot of damage. Um, I know. That's one of the things that is playing on someone like Magnussen's mind is that he's prepared to take a seat basically anywhere for next year because he's already had one year off. He knows that if he has another year off, that'll be it. There'll be more Ocon-type drivers coming through and you become a forgotten man so quickly. So that's probably seems to be the way things are going for Maldonado and there are other drivers on the grid at the moment who are also very wary of that. When Magnussen signed this year, you could really see the relief on his face because he just realised that this was his second chance that most people don't get. And I think you kind of got the sense from that from Pastor as well. He was around the paddock in Monaco and he was kind of talking to anyone that was around and kind of just making people aware that he was still around. 
and he tested the Pirelli car, uh, Pirelli test car, and did some GP2 tyre testing. But you could just see he was desperate to get back in the car. He knew that the longer it goes on, the harder it is to get back. So I think there's something in that, definitely. Well, obviously, we've talked a lot about the, the kind of upper midfield. The reason all the interest is there is because the potential moves around at the front haven't come off. Obviously, Ferrari's seat was one that was talked about a lot. Kimi Raikkonen, a few months ago, was, was confirmed for the future there. So what, what do we make of the kind of status quo being maintained up front? Is this all building towards a big dust-up for 2018? It's set up nicely for 2018, uh, because even if Sebastian renews for one more year, which he, he could do, or Kimi leaves next year, it's all building towards that 2018 year. I think for Mercedes, keeping Lewis and Nico was a no-brainer, because their drivers, Pascal and Esteban, just aren't ready uh, to step up yet. So that made sense, and it gives them stability when you're dominating why don't you want stability? Uh, for Red Bull as well, I think it was a safer safer option really to keep Daniel and Max because at the moment it's still not entirely clear which one of them is probably going to go on to, to win several championships, if any uh, indeed. So I think, yeah, at the moment stability made sense for those two, I think. And that whole move for Verstappen at Red Bull was about shoring up his presence on the Red Bull uh, driver roster in, uh, in the face of competition from Ferrari, wasn't it? So that's that's logical that that will stay the same for, for a few years. Yeah, you can't really criticise Red Bull for being boring in this transfer window, if we want to call it that, because they had their upheaval during the season this year, so they've given us some driver market excitement already. Mercedes makes sense, as Lawrence says. I think Ferrari, at the time, felt like the real letdown. That felt like the, the sort of the move that was going to trigger a really interesting domino effect where all kinds of drives could have opened up and moves could have happened across the grid. And then we were all sat around waiting, I think, for first practice at Silverstone or something. And the announcement came through really low-key, which I guess suits Raikkonen, really low-key, just saying, yep, he's staying for another year. And there was kind of a collective groan in the media centre at the time. I think everybody, even people who maybe don't necessarily have a problem with Raikkonen, liked the idea of a top seat becoming available and a young guy getting a chance, or even a not-so-young guy, someone like Grosjean. So Ferrari sort of stagnated the driver market for a little while there with with that decision Lawrence you're in the paddock has Raikkonen been rejuvenated by that deal or has Vettel sort of fallen off the boil a little bit uh, towards the end of this year I think it's a combination of the two. I remember in July when you mentioned the collective grain in the media centre, I was probably one of the people who thought, well, this isn't so bad. I thought, yeah, that's I, fair. I kind of feel that he's just got one He's got one shot left. And I do think that in recent races, he's really proved that he's, he's not done yet. He's not as good as he used to be. That's clear. But I think that Kimi, on his day, when he's in a groove and feels like things are coming towards his way, can be still really strong. With Sebastian, I think it's... He has had a tough year. He doesn't seem like he's that keen to really push the team. It's kind of like Nico Hulkenberg syndrome, um, like Ed alluded to in his column last week. Um, he just doesn't seem to... He wants to win, but he doesn't seem to have that extra kind of motivation to really do everything that it takes to get the team back to the top, especially when it's struggling. Um, and it's not helped by the fact that for him, he feels he should be beating Kimmy, and he's not. And Kimmy is probably relishing that as well because they talk about this friendship and they talk about how well they get on. But obviously there must be some rivalry in there. So is, is Vettel spitting the dummy or just running out of motivation? I feel like you can almost hear from the tone of his voice when he's talking to the media that he's just got more and more grumpy as this year has gone on. It reminds me a little bit of 2014 when it wasn't working out at Red Bull. And you sort of think, well you need to be able to dig yourself and dig your team out of these sort of situations in the way Michael Schumacher would, for example. 
you can't just you can't just sulk and hope that another big team will come and pluck you from your situation like Ferrari did when Alonso un- unexpectedly left at the end of 2014. Have you detected that? You, you, I know you deal with the Ferrari drivers a lot. What, what have you seen? I think what happened was Sebastian joined Ferrari and it all went better than expected. And I think he just had a really good year last year and he just didn't, he wasn't expecting that. So he's entered this year, like Ferrari has, thinking, oh, we're going to be challenging Mercedes. And they haven't. And his head's dropped. And he speaks in the media sessions everything that you'd expect him to say. He says that the criticism doesn't matter. He says that Ferrari is pushing. He's really going on. He's, he's, he's saying what the team want him to say. But you just get this sense he doesn't believe what it's he's saying. It's the tone, isn't it? Exactly. And I think you picked up on it. I think he just doesn't really believe what he's saying. Whether that's going to change and whether he can re-motivate himself, that's the question. It was interesting that Arriva Bene came out last week or a couple of weeks ago now and said, uh, oh, Sebastian, you need to earn your seat next year to stay to stay put. Um, you've got to refocus on the car. And I think for a team boss to do that in a sport where they rarely criticise their drivers, even he must feel that Sebastian's not quite given everything that he's got. It, it was strategic, wasn't it? Because it was on Italian TV, so it's Ferrari doing it to their sort of home audience, their home media as well. So, yeah, that was clearly, they knew what they were doing there. It's an interesting scenario because obviously, if you're a Formula One driver, the pinnacle is winning the World Championship, isn't it? And Sebastian Vettel's won the World Championship and then he won it again and again and again. And you kind of felt like he needed that new challenge and that was behind his move to Ferrari. So the last box he can tick is winning a World Championship with Ferrari like Michael Schumacher, effectively, who's been a, an influence on his career. But if you're Vettel and you're thinking, right, this is the challenge that's energising me, and you're looking around and thinking, I'm not quite sure about where this team's going, I'm not sure about the leadership, then you can kind of see maybe why that motivation might be fading. Ultimately, it's his job to deliver. This is the problem I had with Raikkonen in the past. He's a fantastic driver, a hugely skilled driver. He's turned in some magnificent performances over time. But there's been too much in the past couple of years with Ferrari when he's not been delivering at the right level. Last few races, I don't don't have a problem with what he's been doing. But it is their job to deliver 100% all the time, and that's Vettel's job. But if he can't lift himself to do that without the realistic prospect of Ferrari giving him a car to win a world championship, then you start to wonder, well, what actually is there left for him? Is is this a guy who's, who's won everything there is to win, has one thing left to do, doesn't think it's maybe possible, and then... Does that just take that edge off? I would argue that Ferrari's not the only project that could motivate him. I mean, he, he came up through the Red Bull ranks and he had the majority of his success with Red Bull. So I would feel that for him, success anywhere outside of the Red Bull stable would be a significant achievement and would also just add a little bit more gravitas to what's already a phenomenal career that has four world championships in it. So I feel that he could move again and try and go somewhere else and... Well, that, that would be the last throw of the dice, wouldn't it? it would Definitely. Kind of, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that if that was to do that, it might be asking himself as much whether he actually feels he could raise himself to do it with another, t- with another team that isn't Ferrari. But is the common problem here actually Ferrari? You know, Fernando Alonso fell out of love with that project before ever completing it. Vettel appears to have hit that wall, if you want to call it that, even quicker. Maybe the problem isn't these drivers who sort of get the hump and end up going off somewhere else. Maybe the problem is the team. The tricky thing is, Formula 1 drivers see Ferrari as this team that they've always wanted to have one go, you know, one chance. They want to wear the red overalls, and Sebastian's one of those. He's always said, oh, it'd be my dream to go to Maranello. And then you get there, and uh, at least in Sebastian and Fernando's case, you kind of realise the challenge that is in front of you. And they... It's like going somewhere a bit rubbish on holiday. You think it's going to be brilliant. You get there, and you're like, oh, this isn't very good. I want to go home now. 
I mean, to be fair, they had uh, they would have looked at Michael Schubacher's story and thought, oh, well, it, it can work. Uh, the difference is he doesn't have the team around him that Michael had. And he doesn't really have the idea or the feeling or he can look around and feel like, oh, this is going to change in a few years because it just seems really disorganised. Well, Schumacher had four years of hardship as well, which I think everyone seems to forget. 96, 97, 98, 99. It took a lot of work to get Ferrari to the stage that it started the 21st century and it almost seems like maybe is it that everyone's too impatient now to do that or is it that Ferrari's perhaps not as willing to change and to bend to its driver's will as it seemed to be able to do in the 90s with Jean Tot at the helm and Schumacher sort of alongside him calling the shots. You'd certainly be a little bit worried about the leadership at Ferrari. Obviously Maurizio Arrivabene took over as team principal for last season which was hugely successful but James Allison has gone. James Allison is very highly rated and for very good reason. So you have to ask, well, how good, how strong is the technical structure now? It's quite hard to tell from the outside. Sebastian Vettel will know how strong he thinks it is. He knows what a strong technical structure under somebody like Adrian Newey can be. So he'll have a very clear picture of what direction that team's going in. So I suspect what Vettel does or doesn't do will be the kind of first signal we'll get about whether the ultimate potential is there in that team. But I'd be, I'd be very worried if I was in Ferrari plenty of good people there but is the whole thing cohering as it should do I feel like Ferrari is the Formula 1 team that's on the fastest route towards behaving like a, a major football team you, know, you have a run of bad results and you have to sack the manager now and we never used to see that in F1 because all the team bosses were team owners but we, we, grad- we saw it a bit from Ferrari back in the day <laughs> yeah, so that's true. this is almost Ferrari going back to old Ferrari at times yeah it? but that was once the team the team founder wasn't around anymore wasn't yeah, it yeah. You know, he, Enzo was calling the shots for quite some time yeah that period between his death in 1988 and Jean Todt coming in in mid-1993 was kind of a revolving door. And strangely enough, it coincided with a terrible period, largely, Awful for, period, for yeah. Ferrari, where they felt like it was a good idea to do things like get rid of Alan Prost. So, yeah, as I was saying, um, a lot of F1 teams now are moving to this structure where the team bosses are almost employees of the overall company. We've seen a lot of people dropped into key positions. So maybe this is just a culture we're going to see more of now in the paddock where these guys are treated more like management that can be essentially fired if it's not working out. And with how few opportunities there are for F1 teams to succeed, you're going to end up with a lot of people losing jobs at that rate up and down the paddock. That's got to be a concern, though, if we end up going down that path. You, I mean, you look at um, Ferrari and where they got to last year and, and the fact that they were winning races, at least. All that work started two, three, four years ago when Stefano Domenicali was... In, in position and it was the work of that and it was just coming kind of happening a few years later what's the concern for Sebastian he's going to look around and he's going to think right if we're starting from scratch now we're looking at three or four years down the line before anything happens and judging by the way that things have happened if someone gets sacked next year we'll start again from next year so it's got to be a massive concern for him so we'll just have to wait and see what he decides but he's only got one year left on his contract there's a couple of options though he's got options from 18 onwards so it's not the end of the world that's when it could get interesting among the top teams. I think Red Bull's probably fairly set for a few years, but obviously Mercedes, Rosberg and Hamilton, you know, they're not on 10-year contracts, are they? So there's question marks there about what will happen. And obviously if Mercedes go into the new regs next year and aren't performing at the same level, then people will start questioning position there. So it could get interesting. What we really want, I think this is what everyone wants to see, you like to see drivers moving around, don't you? I remember, was it 2010? 
going to the first test in Valencia and you just had everyone, you had Schumacher coming back, Alonso at Ferrari, you know, the traffic we were getting on the website was massive for it. It was just great to see all these people in different teams and different cars rather than just the, the sort of same old faces. So that's why it's so fascinating to, to see these changes. So, uh, yeah, tip to F1 teams, change everything. Well, in, uh, in 2010, we had the world champion, Jensen Button, uh, switching from Braun slash Mercedes to go to McLaren. And obviously here we are now, and Jensen's out of F1 uh, for next year. But my feeling on McLaren's changes that they had to make was they had no choice. You know, Stoffel van Dorn is the irresistible force, and you've got to find a way to get him into your team. If you've got him on your books, I think they had to make the decision that they've made. You, you kind of use them or lose them, don't you? They've invested in him. They parked him in Super Formula for a year just to keep Ray sharp. You can do that for a year, but but no more. And it's not like he's 18 either. So, you know, they needed to put him in. The time had come. It's a perfect scenario for McLaren, really, because they've got a driver in which they've been back in, as you say, for several years. And they've got a driver that they can kind of hang on to. And in case he doesn't do so well, they can bring him back in again. So it's, it's the perfect world. And one must be delighted with the bit of business that he's done. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see how Stoffel does. Do you think that Jensen's been retained in case Stoffel doesn't work out? Or does it give McLaren a stronger bargaining position when it's time to potentially renew Alonso's contract? I think he's the ultimate backup plan, isn't he, for both scenarios, I think. Um, there's every chance that Fernando will throw his toys out of his pram next year if things don't quite go well or they don't progress as well as they'd hoped. And then they could jettison Jensen back in you've still got a question whether they'd want to do that Jensen's going to have going to go and have a great year off is he really going to want to come back is he going to be in great shape as he says he's going to be is he going to be as sharp as he was and is he as sharp as they thought he was when he first when they first employed him anyway um but they've got options who's to say they can't employ Sebastian next year I mean he'll be out of contract there'll be a, there'll be a space uh, at McLaren so you know I, I think it's too early now but I think on the basis of keeping Button yeah it's that ultimate insurance policy I think one called it didn't they? You get the feeling as well that they like having Button there he's still commercially valuable and obviously you know they want to do driver days Van Dorn isn't going to be as commercially effective for them certainly in the short term as Button would be and it's good for Button because it means he can keep working for McLaren for years if he wants paid a nice little wage for Job uh, for life for a few days work and that, there's no bad thing for that you know he's earned it with his, his achievements so it makes sense to makes sense to do that but I think Van Dorn's going to be a, a fascinating one you know he's going to keep Alonso on his toes and as you say how well McLaren Honda does next year is going to dictate whether Alonso can win a third world championship there it'd be fascinating if Alonso does go because there's there's one scenario whereby Alonso Let's say he gets bored with McLaren Honda. He still wants that third world championship. Could he end up back at Renault? Is this just the irresistible thing that happens in his career? He just wins world championships with Renault. He's been back once before. I'm not suggesting that's going to happen, but wouldn't that be a, an amusing situation to, to arise? It would look good in history, wouldn't it, if he managed to make it happen? I'm pretty sure, didn't Fernando say that if it doesn't work out with McLaren, that will be it? Did he say this is going to be his he, last team? He said he'd end his career at Ferrari yeah, and all sorts. He's going to be at McLaren for life, I think, as well. In 2007. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. If he can, feels he can get into a car that can deliver and he's still capable of delivering and he hasn't got bored, then he, he'll keep going. Obviously, his ideal is McLaren Honda takes a good step forward next year. I don't think they're going to be winning the World Championship next year, but you, know, you can see them getting into the top four and then there's a platform to move forward there. But if they don't, that's when he, he'll start thinking, oh, what's, what's the point? In some ways, you think that having a essentially a rookie teammate could actually make Alonso's life quite difficult next year if the car isn't great because it's going to be a lot easier for the inexperienced new guy in the team to remain motivated 
than it is maybe the world champion who's thinking, well, I came here, this is year three of this project. We were supposed to be at the front by now. Alonso could maybe almost share in that frustration with Jensen because they were two of the same type of drivers, two world champions there for the same reason. Now he's going to have a guy who, even on the bad days, is surely going to want to wring the neck of that car and seventh and eighth place finishes, if that's what McLaren are fighting for next year, Van Dorn will eat those up. He'll love those because he's never had it before. You wonder how how quickly Alonso's patience could wear thin and Van Dorn could expose that if he's not if he's not careful. You already get the impression that Fernando's patience is wearing thin. Uh, in Japan this year, he didn't quite go as far as to say GP2 engine again, but he did make enough comments over the course of the weekend where he, he didn't really need to do that. He just wanted to remind uh, Honda that he was, still, he was still angry with them. He still wasn't happy with the performance. So there's every chance that his patience will run out at the end of the next year. Um, and he, and how's he going to react when Stoffel, should Stoffel beat him? Obviously, when he, he teamed up with Lewis and Lewis was a rookie, that didn't go all that well, did it? And, and Van Dorn is very, very good. Yeah, he's but a real deal. People have a tendency to kind of equate all new drivers coming in as having a blank slate, as if what they've done before doesn't matter. But Van Dorn is, is seriously good. He's proved at every level. He's done well in Japan. Super Formula is not an easy place to go. He's got a pole position. He's emerged as a race winner. That's impressive in a, in a seriously competitive series for the specialists. So he's up to the challenge. Van Dorn will do, at worst, a very good job as a rookie next year. And if it wouldn't take much for Alonso to be a bit off his game for him to then be shown up a little bit by it. So that'll make things interesting. And Van Dorn will be determined to show what he can do. That's a huge carrot to have dangled if you are a rookie, isn't it? To have such a high-profile teammate. It, in some ways, it... He almost can't go wrong for Van Dorn. I mean, let's assume he, he won't get demolished. If he's there and thereabouts, but maybe not quite on Alonso's pace, you say, right, well, Alonso's one of the greats. Van Dorn's established himself very well. If he beats him, you know, then it's he's on a rocket ship to the moon uh, in terms of sort of F1 profile and what could be possible for him in the future. And that's going to put him in a position where McLaren are going to want to start to build the team around him. That's what they're desperate for, McLaren. They want a long-term future. And if Stoffel delivers and there's every chance, like you say, that he's going to do that, he's going to be in a brilliant position. So, yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a win-win situation on that, on that score. And obviously there's a few driver moves to go on the lower part of the grid. Uh, we haven't heard too much about that. Obviously, it tends to be a bit of a domino effect, doesn't it? That the front of the grid gets sorted, then the mid-grid. And then you just have this mad panic of people thinking, oh, I'd quite like to stay in F1. I better try and find something slow to drive around in. <laughs> so, so what are we going to see? Toro Rosso, obviously, are going to have science. He's had a very good season. Renault showed some interest. They were told, no, he's going to carry on here. So I guess that's our starting point. What's going to happen? We've got Daniel Cuvette in the second seat. Pierre Gasly is fighting for the GP2 title, though Antonio Giovinazzi who incidentally is another guy who's knocking on a few F1 team doors and could be in the mix, uh, could beat him to the title. So is it going to be Gasly and Toro Rosso alongside Sainz? I think it's going to be one of those two, Red Bull and Toro Rosso in this great position where they're in no rush to make a decision. Uh, the interesting thing is in recent races, maybe one, the last one or two, Daniel Kvyat's really picked it up. Uh, and you, you can tell that because Carlos Sainz seems a little bit more concerned about what's going on. And he, he all season long, he's he's been strong. He's, he's been the strongest driver in that team. But you get the sense, at least in the last two, that he's feeling the pressure a little bit. And I think that's interesting from Kvyat's point of view because he's now starting to talk about how, oh, I think it'll be happening soon. I'm, you know, I'm feeling comfortable in the car again. I'm loving F1 again. And he's saying all these things, which he wasn't saying a couple of weeks ago. So I think that he's moved into pole position to keep that seat. The team like him. 
him. He's a very good driver to work with, uh, and I think that's very important. And stability is going to be important next year for that team. I got nothing against Kvyat, and I think he was treated pretty badly earlier this year by Red Bull. But if you have a driver like Gasly, who's come up the ladder, has done pretty much everything right, and appears to be on the cusp of being ready for an F1 drive, that's the whole point of Toro Rosso. So if you've got this guy who's fought for the GP2 title, even if he misses out, you know, I, I can't recall a Red Bull driver ever winning that championship. The whole point of that team is to give this sort of guy a chance. So I think it would be a mistake and it would make me question the whole point of having a junior team if you keep the guy you've already demoted from the senior team at the expense of a guy who's coming out of GP2 and should be ready for the next step. I think the difficulty is that Red Bull's junior programs work too well, so they've yeah. got two really good drivers, uh, and I don't think they really foresaw a situation where they'd have two drivers um, in the main team and the senior team who they want to keep long term, plus someone in their junior team who they really want to keep long term, and that only leaves one more seat. And I think you're right that it it would be unfair if Gasly doesn't get a chance next year, but. The fact that they put Kvyat back in Toro Rosso means that they obviously see something in him and they feel like it's worth giving him one more go. And it's not like he has been railroaded by science since he's gone back in. Yeah, it took him some time, but he settled in. He's had to get over the mental side of things, which clearly hurt him. Um, so I think he's worth one more shot. I think it, it would be fair to do that. I think it'll all come down to who really makes a decision there and what Red, uh, what Red Bull wants to achieve with it. Obviously, Toro Rosso, I'm sure if you asked Franz Toss, the team principal, and James Key, the technical director, who do you want? They'd probably go with the experience of Yap. Makes sense. However, obviously there is this this whole young driver dimension to it. Helmut Marko's part of that. Dietrich Mateschitz has been known to stick his oar in a little bit there. My understanding is when Sebastian Buemi and Jaime Alguasari were axed in favour of Daniel Ricciardo and John Eric Verne, that was actually a Mateschitz decision. You can't really argue with Mateschitz no, sticking exactly, yeah. his oar in, so to speak. Exactly, right. it's, it's his plaything, isn't it? But Marco was keen to keep them in there. And actually, from my understanding, Mateschitz basically saw the feedback that says, yeah, they're, they're good drivers, but we don't think they're quite going to be good enough for the A-team. And he thought, well, OK, bring on the next lot. And actually, <laughs> he's been shown to have been correct in that one because Daniel Ricciardo has done an amazing job through Toro Rosso and, and since being promoted. So I guess that's what's going to dictate it, isn't it? It's what's the actual priority. If it's team, probably you go Kvyat, certainly for next season. If it's driver development programme, I think you go Gasly. And obviously we've also got Sauber. Marcus Ericsson's got connections, so I think we can we can uh, ink him in there, I presume. And Felipe Nazar has still got some backing and he was sniffing around Williams, etc. But is there any, anywhere else for him to go other than Sauber, really? I think it would be fair to say both Marcus Ericsson and Felipe Nazar wanted to leave Sauber. Uh, so they have been asking around, uh, having talks with various teams. For both of them, Williams was one potential stop. Uh, they both bring money, so they fit that bill. Uh, unfortunately, they just don't bring enough money. The way it's looking, they're both going to stay put. Um, as you suggested, Ed, uh, there are links between Marcus Ericsson and his backers and the new owners who have taken over. It makes sense for him to stay there. So is this just, is this just that scenario I referred to earlier of drivers realising that options are running out and they just want to find something slow to drive around in for a year. Well, it's better than staying out of Formula 1 for a year, as we discussed earlier. And, and you know, there could be worse places than Sauber. Uh, Where? I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Man, with its, uh, obviously, Manor are going to have an up-to-date engine. Sauber are going to have to have the older one. Well, Sauber are convinced that this uh, one-year-old engine is not going to be a, a negative next year. Is that year. because it's worked so well for Toro Rosso this year? Well, there is supposed to be a mechanism in place, though, isn't there? that the older engines 
we're going to have some kind of tweak made to them to make them a bit more competitive. So I guess it's not quite like for like. It's not exactly the closed shop, yeah, that Toro Rosso have had, where they just had a unit that was untouched. They're not going to get the developments. They're going to seem massively on track. I think they're, they're just convinced or they're trying to convince themselves that they can make enough gains on the aero side. Um, but but that- why, why? Obviously, Sauber got saved. Everything was exciting. Investment. Yeah, hooray. Great. Long-established team has got some money coming in. And then they've got a year-old engine to drive around with, which isn't necessarily that encouraging, is it? That, well, and year-old drivers as well. Exactly. That, that's, <laughs> I mean, that strikes me as kind of a, a survival pattern just to keep things ticking over rather than an ambitious one. Look what, look what Manor has achieved this year by spending properly on the engine and getting the best engine. That's catapulted them up the grid. But it looks like this decision was made before they were saved. Um, that doesn't mean the decision couldn't have been changed when they say that's a fair point. Um, they've just obviously taken this decision I don't think there's loads of money that have come from this owners I think they're going to spend it quite cleverly um, they're going to waste you know waste their investment they're going to waste it on the bit that makes the car go quick isn't it? Yeah. well are they, are they gambling <laughs> though that we won't have such an engine dependent formula next year or is, is oh, that massively. a myth is that yeah. a myth though what, what I suspect is probably going on here is because Sauber obviously had struggled for a while there's a little bit of rebuilding that needs to be done there so they probably just think actually 2017 is a tick over year and we can actually spend that money and the focus on build, sort of rebuilding the infrastructure properly and getting the team to the level they, they want to. But what happens if you finish outside the top 10 of the constructors again? You know, you're, you're trying to save money and do it slowly and build your way back up. But are you costing yourself more money in the long run in terms of the F1 contracts and how you earn all your money from Eccleston? It'd be a big problem if it happened next year. <laughs> if they're 11th this year and ne- 11th next year, that's, that's serious. That's an expensive Very failure, expensive, isn't it? Yeah. I think they're just taking the gamble. I think they've realised that although they say they they can still score a point this year, that's not going to happen uh, unless something magical happens. Um, and so they can't afford for that to happen again next year. They fell behind, essentially, with their 2017 design while they're waiting for new owners. And that means they're already on their back foot. So at least if you had the engine spec that you're building the car around, that must help somehow in developing for next year, or at least getting on some stable platform. And then they've got to hope that they can nail a load of points finishes early in the season, like Toro Rosso didn't quite manage to do this year to build help them for the rest of the season. What are Manor's plans looking like for next year? Obviously, this year's car from the outside looks quite underdeveloped on the chassis and aero side. They've used the Mercedes engine to their advantage and got that vital point in Austria. Have they ploughed a load of resource into the 2017 car or are they going to be again relying on the engine to drag them into the midfield? I don't think they've ploughed a load of resource into the 2017 car, but I think what they have done is learn all the lessons that they learned from years gone by where uh, two seasons ago they had that bespoke compromise car that they put together. Then they've had this year, which was their first proper real challenge. And uh, this year with a stable team and all the people in place, I think they've learned a load of lessons from that. Pascal was saying, although they haven't, let him see the 2017 car because he's not he's uh, not signed for next year yet he was talking about how the team just seemed to know where they go in the direction of the car the core fundamentals of the car and he said that that what he didn't really feel that that was as much of the case last year so that's really encouraging for manor i don't think they're going to be making giant steps but i do think they are on this upward trajectory and that's a massive concern for salva because if they keep going that way the only place left for salva is the bottom of the pile so what are, what are manor gonna have behind the steering wheel all of their drivers currently seem to have been moved on to Force Indias and uh, and Renaults potentially. So obviously Verline and Ocon, either or both, could still be there with the way things are going on. But there's a, there's a strong possibility one or two of them might not be. So what are we going to see from them? Clearly, 
there's an interest in pay drivers because they had Rio Harianto in the seat on that basis. So is it going to be one non-pay driver and one pay driver? Is that the model? Well, Manor are like the Southampton, aren't they? If, uh, exactly what I was thinking. Manor are like Southampton. <laughs> Stop they... stating the obvious. <laughs> no context whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that in the sense that Southampton have a lot of players that they bred through their system and then they go on to bigger clubs and they sign for loads of money and they tend to do well. And that seems to be the pattern that might start emerging for, for Manor. Um, I don't know, they announced Rio Hanriento a week before pre-season testing, so I wouldn't imagine that we're going to have a decision until that late next year. Um, they've just got to wait till everyone else decided what they're going to do and then see what's left. Um, they will hope that in years to come they won't be in that position, but that's effectively where they are at the moment. They'd like to hold on to both Esteban and Pascal, but as things are starting to fall into place, it doesn't look like that's going to be likely to even be able to hold on to either of them. Um, who knows? They might want to take some money from Marcus Eriksson, for example, or Felipe Nez. You just don't know at the moment. I think they're the ones who are just going to have to wait and see what happens. One of the guys who maybe falls out of the midfield for this season might be able to put a package together to get a drive there. And then it could be another Harrianto case where you do get someone a little bit left field who suddenly finds a load of backing and can essentially buy the second seat. And that kind of brings us also onto the team we haven't really gone near as yet, which is Haas, which appears to have... Roman Grosjean will be there. It's a good signing. Esteban Gutierrez, there's question marks over. You know, he Gutierrez could be one of those guys who sort of falls down from the midfield, should we say. Uh, but what's, what's going to happen there? Well, Roman was one uh, that I think Haas wanted to get done and dusted quite early on, and he seems to love it there. He's had a great time there this year. And Except when he's on the radio. <laughs> or, or on the breaks. But you know what? You've got to be pretty confident, I think, in yourself and in your team that if you're going to go... Sl- criticising them on the radio that they're not going to take it personally okay yeah, fair, fair enough that's fair he, he does he does go on and on and on at them but Gunter, when he talks about how they when he hears about the comments he do, he's not he's nonplussed really about the whole thing and I think it's from the top down isn't it it filters down from it and it makes it entertaining for everyone else um but I think that they were keen to keep him he was keen to stay and he's not quite done with that project so yeah I think he'll be in place the other seat um is interesting Char- Charles Leclerc would have been a good possibility, but I think it's just really a really great possibility. He's, he's another proper up and comer part of that generation of drivers that's coming through. But I think it's just it's smart move not to bring him in too early because we can see what happens when you do bring drivers in. They might just crumble underneath the pressure. Or and they're Max Verstappen. You know, if we took that attitude, this is your rookie podcast. We'd have had someone else in, and you know, you're thriving. <laughs> well, it's very nice of you to say. There's still a few minutes to go. Yeah, don't um, big him up too much. He'll ask for a higher fee next time. Higher than, higher than nothing. We'll double it. Hang on, there's a fee? Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> no one told me about that. Same fee for everything you do. I'll write a big zero on a piece of paper <laughs> and you can have that. <laughs> Get it on a novelty check. Anyway, you're actually saying something of interest to the to the listeners. Yeah. So is it Gutierrez <laughs> or is there anyone else sort of in the frame there? I think Gutierrez is the one that it's likely to be um, at the moment. Um, there's no point in them announcing that because they really do need to keep the pressure on him because he's just not delivering as much as, as, as he should do. He's a frustrating driver, isn't he? Because this is what we've seen from him for a long time, going back before Formula One. Speed there, and there's there's good bits, but Clark Suzuka was another example that he did quite a few good things, but then didn't string everything together. He's only got one points finish in almost three full seasons of Formula One, which is not great for a driver of fundamental ability. He'd probably also point out he's finished fifth, uh, 11th five times this year, so he'd 
yeah, claim you, that he'd always you the, got a You point. get the same number of points for finishing 11th in F1 as you do a fee for this podcast, so uh, that's, that's going to get you nowhere. But no, he's, he's a strange driver, Gutierrez. I remember with Sauber when he was running, I think it was 8th at Monaco, and he just made an extraordinary error hitting the inside barrier at Raskas, just a moment of inattentiveness almost, which co- which was hugely costly because that, that would have got Sauber into the points. They didn't score at all that season. Just little things like that, you sort of think, you know, you're, you're better than that. But whether it's a concentration issue, I, I don't know. It's a shame because you want to see him doing well. There's ability there. He's, you know, he's a, he's a good guy, Gutierrez. But, you know, there comes a point where after three seasons, you've got to start delivering vaguely consistently. It's not even really consistently we're looking for. And that's the thing for me. I like Esteban. I covered him a lot coming up the ranks to F1. But he's had his chance. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a nice guy. If you've had three years of driving... You know, not great machinery, but machinery that other people have been able to get into the points. I'm afraid you've had your chance. And I, I, that's why I can't get my head around a talent like Leclerc missing out on a seat so that a guy can have a fourth shot at trying to get some occasional points finishes while someone else is leading the team. Haas have already got their sort of sure thing in Grosjean, the guy that should be getting the job done every week. I would much rather see that second seat put to use, whether it's for Haas's long-term benefit or Ferrari's long-term benefit. I just like to see seats that, you know, we talked about Renault having a plan earlier, didn't we? And looking like a team with a plan because they put some building blocks in place in their driver lineup. I feel like that Haas seat could be one of those really useful building blocks on the grid. But it's, it's going to go to waste if we just keep Gutierrez in it, unfortunately. It could, I think that it could be in two, three, four years time, but it's still only Haas's second season next year. And for all... Gutierrez's faults and lack of speed and lack of consistency in scoring points he is he has at least got some experience so he should be able to plug into that car next year and at least if the car's strong enough be doing what Roman's doing maybe a step below and that's less of a risk than bringing Leclerc in because you're not quite sure how he's going to deliver obviously you can have these highs but you're not you might also get those lows and I, th- I still think there's this sense at Haas that they are still a new team they're trying to keep things calm and they don't want to get ahead of themselves so I can kind of see why they've done it I, I take your point it's a, it would be really nice to see a young guy in that car but I can see why they've taken the decision or they're moving towards the decision that looking likely at the moment obviously Haas is going into its first home race this weekend it'd be remiss of us not to talk about the uh, the United States Grand Prix coming up in Austin obviously Lawrence you're about to hop on a plane to head out there this is a Lewis Hamilton venue he's won three times there in the four times F1's been there though he's never been on pole position so his job's quite simple is it? he's just got to go there blitz it win and, and hope Rosberg doesn't doesn't finish second and hope the engine doesn't blow up because he blitzed the race recently and it didn't work out. Yeah, it doesn't guarantee anything. <laughs> Lewis is probably is just thinking, what have I got to do to just get a win? Because clearly, if he does everything, it's still not enough, is it? Um, it's handy that we're arriving at a circuit where he has had so much success and he seems to have had the upper hand on Nico. Um, wasn't it a gust of wind that caught Nico out last year? Yeah, Nico was defeated by the wind. Yeah. So, uh, so Lewis is, you know, Lewis has got to take all those little things and he's got to build on them and just keep hoping. Uh, that it falls his way again um, so yeah as I say it's a good circuit for him to go back to um, and Nico will know that um, so but then Nico only has to finish second so it's, it's tricky but the interesting it? thing is though that obviously the maths are fairly simple if Rosberg's second to Lewis in each of the last four races he wins a championship easy job done but there's, there's only been four Mercedes 1-2s this year so the idea that they get four 1-2s in the last four races is is pretty improbable so 
it feels to me like Rosberg should win it from here. It's completely in his hands, ultimately. But you feel there's going to be another little twist here on there, which is exactly why Hamilton needs to make sure he's not like he was at the back end of last season after he clinched a championship in the, in the USGP. He needs to make sure he goes out there, wins the races to give himself the best possible chance. So if Rosberg does trip up, then the, the momentum swings his way. I do feel that the worst thing Rosberg could do from here is try to finish second four times. However, as Lawrence has set the scene, Austin is, is Hamilton territory, I feel. So maybe of, of the three races that are remaining, this is the one where maybe Rosberg will be working towards a second place. And he should, he'll probably have an idea of that after Friday, won't he? That We'll see how everyone hits the ground running. And if Lewis is in the groove, then Rosberg's got to go about his own business, I think, not get too psyched out by that. And it'll be an interesting test of his mentality. He is in a position of strength now in this world championship. So if he has a calm weekend or he doesn't get flustered, no matter what Lewis is doing on the other side of the garage, that might be quite telling for what to expect over the rest of the season. If if he goes to pieces because Lewis has got three temps on him or whatever, you know, come Saturday afternoon, that will also that will give Lewis, I imagine, quite a lot of hope for the rest of the season. But Rosberg looks pretty solid to me at the moment. I think with Nico, he he has been smart in that he's gone to races where he knows or he's known that he's not the best. And so he hasn't settled for second. He's just done the best and realised that I'm probably going to finish second. So he kind of, that's all he really needs to do now. And if he can keep that mentality and if he keep keep talking like he's been talking, I'm looking at taking it one race at a time. Um, I'm not looking further ahead. Than you did roll your eyes there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, it gets boring here in that week yeah. in, week out. Um, if he can keep doing that, then there's no reason why he can't. But then he's not been at this stage of a championship with this lead and with this pressure before. And, we don't know how he's going to cope with it. We've seen him crack under pressure several times. I think there was that moment in Monza a few years ago when Lewis chased him down, wasn't there? In Russia as well, he locked up at Turn 1. and So he is susceptible to pressure. The, and wind. <laughs> and wind indeed. Trouble is, Lewis hasn't been putting him under pressure recently and he's been having his own problems. So it, it all still hangs on Lewis in a way, doesn't it? And how he turn, you know, what Lewis turns up at this race weekend. And if it, as you said, if his engine holds up. And who's your money on? For this weekend? This weekend and the championship. Uh, for this weekend, I think Lewis, yeah. barring engine difficulties, uh, should win it. Um, I, I think Lewis has still got a chance of winning this. So if I had to put some money, and I don't gamble, but if I had to you put some money You can put your podcast it, <laughs> fee on it. <laughs> ah, there we go. <laughs> Sorted. I'll put my podcast fee on Lewis winning the title. Excellent. Well, it's a reasonable bet, isn't it? You know, 33 points. It's a big margin, but like we say, Rosberg's not, it's surely not going to finish second in every race. He may win them all, but you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of twists and turns still to, still to happen. I still think Rosberg's going to do it. Um, I don't necessarily think he's overall the better of the two drivers, but I think he's put together a good season. He's capitalised on Lewis's problems, be they of his own making or of mechanical makings. And I think now he's in a position of strength and I think he can get the job done. Well, we'll find out this weekend with the United States Grand Prix. You'll be able to follow all the coverage there on autosport.com. Obviously, Lawrence will be bringing you the latest news and insight from the paddock out there. There's also Autosport magazine out on Thursday, which takes a close look at Max Verstappen and even mentions whether he may be destined to end his career in the same bracket as the Senna and the Schumachers of this world. Sacrilege to some, but there's some pretty good evidence there that he's going to be a real force to be reckoned with. So it's thanks very much to Glenn Freeman and to impressive rookie debutante, 
Lawrence Barreto. We expect to see a little bit more consistency from you, Lawrence, in the next ones, but you've made a good start. You're certainly uh, ahead of Gutierrez in the, uh, in the pecking order for us. Wow, so, high praise. High praise indeed, exactly. So we'll be back next week with a look back at the United States Grand Prix on the next Autosport podcast. is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The world is waiting, waiting for new thinking, for bold ideas that embrace a globally connected community, working together to create a better future for all. And that future, it can be found here at UC Riverside. Here, you'll join a community where diversity equals vitality, where support and empowerment lifts spirits and propels ideas forward. Fearless, innovative, connected. UC Riverside. Bold hearts, brilliant minds. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.